Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Or make your guess. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I can hardly wait to get things started. So I'd like to start by reading Psalm 68, the first three verses. May God arise. May his enemies be scattered. May his foes flee before him. May you blow them away like smoke as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God. May the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. I hope you are having a happy and joyful day. I'm going to be joined by Thomas Jipping from the Heritage Foundation coming up in about 60 seconds, but I'm awfully glad that you are uh, with me today. Let's take a little break, and we'll be joined by Heritage Foundation Thomas Jipping. Thanks and giving. They go together like peanut butter and jelly and pineapple with Ritz crackers and cheese. Wait, what? Yep, look up the recipe. You'll thank me. When you have a thankful heart, you realize your blessings and generosity comes naturally. When you have a giving heart, others are filled with gratitude and the wonderful cycle continues. At Faith Radio, we're thankful for you, your friendship, prayers, and financial support. So we hope to give you the best Bible teaching and conversations to help you connect faith to life. Declaring that God's love echoes in the depths of who we are. Faith Radio, worshiping with you. Welcome back to the show. Awfully glad to be uh, meeting Tom Thomas Chipping. He's the dire- uh, deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and senior legal fellow. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks. And so tell our listeners a little bit about what it is you do as the deputy director for the Edwin Meese III Center. Sure. The, the Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation uh, is a very robust part of the the think tank, and we look at issues, everything from constitutional issues to election integrity, criminal justice reform, uh, and I, I sort of specialize in issues that relate to um, the Supreme Court, the federal judiciary, uh, impeachment, some social issues. So we, we do a lot of media, publish a tremendous amount, hoping to apply conservative principles in these various areas. Yeah, and I'm already calling you Tom like we're golfing buddies, you know? Yeah, my mom does. So. <laughs> All right. Well, there's lots of things to discuss, and 
it, it's interesting that we are uh, looking at what appears to be an unprecedented approach to this uh, impeachment. Yeah, I, I think people need to know that. I, I, however it comes out, and I think most people probably assume that you know Democrats in the House are pretty determined to impeach the president, but um, I think people need to understand the approach that's being taken to it apart from the substantive issues underneath, because if we don't have a consensus in our country about uh, sort of the rules of the road, so to speak, about how our government is supposed to work – um, th then really we we really can't be the kind of country that we need to be. And the fact is the way this impeachment process is being conducted in, in probably a dozen different ways is very different from the way it was conducted for President Clinton 20 years ago, for President Nixon in the early 1970s, everything from – the, the respective powers of the majority and the minority on these committees to, you know, a bunch of different ways. It's, and, in, and in each one of these ways that it's departing from past practice, it's in a way that pushes it more toward partisanship, more toward, you know, kind of looking like a rigged process. And I don't think that's good for our country, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. And Tom, it sounds like there's been talk from the Democratic side that the president is, in fact, guilty. Now let's have the trial. That doesn't seem to be the way it works in America. Well, uh, the first articles of impeachment against President Trump were actually filed in June 2017. Uh, people need to know that, too, that uh, Democrats in the House have been talking about impeachment almost since the day he took office. So this did not start a couple of months ago with a phone call to the president of Ukraine. Uh, Democrats have been determined to use uh, to sort of weaponize the impeachment process, to use that as a, 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 a way of trying to undo the last election. They've been trying that since uh, since the day he took the oath of office. And now it's a little bit more formal, but they've been trying to do it for almost three years. So how do you, when you watch this, how do you evaluate the uh, credibility and the honesty of what's being said at, at these at this trial? That, that is a little bit challenging because, of course, few of us are going to know <clears throat> from our own knowledge um, much about the underlying facts or issues. Uh, you know, I don't know much about foreign policy and all of that. However, you can ask a few kind of common sense questions. Um, you know, does the person who's testifying uh, before the Intelligence Committee, let's say, uh, have firsthand knowledge of what he or she is talking about? That's a very practical question. Someone who does has more credibility than someone who doesn't. The two witnesses uh, last week, um, on Wednesday, for example, I mean, one of them said, well, uh, this is what I heard from someone who'd been told by someone else about, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that's important. And, and also having a little bit of knowledge of um, impeachment itself. Now, that's a kind of an obscure topic. We hope we would never have to use it, of course, but it is in the Constitution. Just because you disagree with the president about policy issues, Democrats clearly have a problem with how he conducts foreign policy, but those aren't issues that we remove a president for by impeachment, those are an issue those are issues that come up in an election and we, and we have one less than a year away. So uh, th those are some of the things that you know to kind of put things in context a little bit. The fact is, American people ought to have a chance to pass judgment on how President Trump is doing and 
uh, short-circuiting that through impeachment isn't the best way to go. Mm-hmm. And it seems that there's a considerable amount of fatigue already going on with the public. I don't know how well these are being watched, but it seems like conversation on the street is saying, eh, not that interested in following it. Well, I, I think it's going to parallel a lot what you already think of President Trump. Sure. Um, and I think at the end result, and of course, there, there's going to be he- continued hearings in the Intelligence Committee, then hearings in the Judiciary Committee, and then the Judiciary Committee is going to produce articles of impeachment. So we don't know yet precisely what that's going to look like, but you know, we can assume it'll have a lot to do with these events. And you know, if it, the, the memo about that phone call that was out a couple months ago, if people read that, I think reasonable people could look at it different ways. Uh, And all of this angst that's going on, I think people can legitimately ask, you know, what, why is this impeachable? Why, why, why is the way he removed the ambassador from Ukraine impeachable? Doesn't he have the right to do that? Well, yes, he does. So uh, I I actually hope people get fatigued by it because uh, this is a lot of sound and fury uh, signifying not a whole lot. Mm Mm-hmm. When I think of the president being a complete outsider to politics for the most part, I mean, he's been a businessman his whole life, and he steps into politics, does he run the risk of uncovering things that will make politicians and lifelong politicians uh, terrified? He certainly could, um, you know, without the sort of radar that your career politicians might have. But... You know, at the same time, he's not exactly uh, the slickest, smoothest person to, to occupy the office. So even his style could kind of rile people, um, and they could react, you know, politically and negatively about any of those things. Mm-hmm. And he certainly has uh, the ability to uh, be divisive, but I think every president in the past has had an ability to be divisive because country's so largely divided that it's going to be the that case pretty much whoever's in office. Well, look, in a in a free in a free country that is as diverse and as vibrant as this one um where you have a political process in which, you know, everyone can participate, it, it it's important what goes on and there are important things that are uh, happening and about which there are different of different opinions, but I think that's that's all the more reason to leave things like this up to elections. Um, even Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon, the last two impeachment inquiries that were done of a president, they had already been reelected. Uh, president Trump hasn't. So rather than short circuit the last election and take away from the American people the choice in the next election. I think our system of government is designed so that however it comes out, the people ought to be able to make the choice about who their national leader should be. I agree. Thomas Jipping is my guest. He is the deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. And he's been an awfully good sport to uh, be on the program today. Normally, of course, we hear from Rob Louie, but uh, today we have the distinct pleasure of having Mr. Jipping with us. We'll take a short break and we will be right back.
Welcome back to the show. So glad to be having on for the very first time Thomas Chipping. He is the Deputy Director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and Senior Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Thomas, let's talk a little bit about uh, free speech and how it's being uh, treated on college campuses nowadays and just how fragile liberty can be. You wrote this great article on the Daily Signal regarding this. Well, the, the fragility of it is is really important. We take so many things for granted in this country, uh, but you know they they. I hope I don't know if it's a true story, but they said when the the Constitution was written, and they asked Benjamin Franklin, "Well, what kind of form of government you know have you been have you established?" And he said, "A republic, if you can keep it." Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, just down the street from. Here is the National Archives, and on one of the statues out front, it says, uh, "Vigilance is the price of liberty," and uh, and so we have to pay attention to that always. Uh, this issue uh, has a has some resonance for me because 35 years ago, when I was in law school at the State University of New York, uh, my First Amendment professor wrote a speech code, a censorship policy for the law school that the that the faculty unanimously passed. Imagine that. He teaches First Amendment law at a public university law school, and he writes a censorship code to shut people up. So well, That makes no sense. Uh, well, uh, it didn't to me either, but it was, a, it was a, an example to me then, and it's kind of come full circle now, about what freedom really means. And, it, and it's, you know, our rights riots and fall together. We have to respect other people's rights if, if if we're going to demand that our rights be respected as well. And it, it is a very serious problem because you'd think college campuses would be one of the, the places where freedom of speech and a marketplace of ideas would be the most important, and it's really under siege. And if I can just go to your article that you wrote on this, which is at the Daily Signal DailySignal.com is the website. Of course, all my listeners know that because of uh, Rob being a regular guest. What James Madison said as the primary author of the Constitution, he wrote, Our First Amendment freedoms give us the right to think what we like and say what we please. And if we the people are to govern ourselves, we must have these rights, even if they are misused by a minority. Those are beautiful words. That's the principle. Um, I mean, there are plenty of places, countries in this world, where the the government in power determines what people may say, uh, where they may go, what they may do, and I wouldn't want to live in any of them. Um, we have a, a, a cherished history of liberty in this country. In fact, the, the Declaration of Independence said that the purpose of government is to secure inalienable rights such as liberty. <clears throat> so whether it's free speech, free exercise of religion, that First Amendment um, uh, identifies absolutely critical rights for a country like this to to survive, let alone thrive. And uh, and we, we've got to – we can't just talk like that. We have to believe it. We have to act on it. And uh, uh, the time is, is now to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom, there's been an interesting decision by U.S. Court of Appeals, and this is another article you wrote at DailySignal.com on the Telescope Media Group. Maybe you would tell our listeners about that. Sure. This is this is one of the um, <clears throat> kind of the latest clashes over the free exercise of religion, and this is where it's essentially a clash between 
uh, the constitutional right to exercise religion, and the civil right to be free from discrimination. In other words, in this case, this was a couple who had started a company that uh, created um, media and, and visual presentations, and they wanted to do so for weddings. Uh, but the state of Minnesota has a law that required businesses to um, act in a way that would promote uh, the homosexual agenda, that, that it, in, including <clears throat> that they had to speak in a certain way about same-sex marriage. And this couple, they're Christians, they didn't want to do that. They, they didn't want to be forced to, to say something about something like same-sex marriage that they didn't believe. Uh, and yet the state of Minnesota said, well, you, you can't do business unless that's what you say. So they went to court. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit uh, in Minnesota struck that down uh, and, and did so in a very straightforward, very forthright way and basically said civil rights, which are rights that are granted by statute, civil rights, like the right not to be discriminated against, have to give way to constitutional rights. Now, I would have thought that that was as obvious as can be, but mm -hmm. the court said that, and our, America's founders certainly believed that, that the right to, the, to freely exercise religion uh, is superior, is, is um, <clears throat> above other rights that are granted just by statute. So you have these clashes. There's a whole bunch of cases around the country where the same sort of conflict appears with uh, photographers and bakers and you know other other people who have a profession that uh, can touch upon marriage and therefore same-sex marriage, uh, and and hopefully hopefully the constitutional right to exercise religion will prevail in each of these cases. Mm -hmm. And of course, Chick Fil A has been in the news because of their uh, cutting back on some donations to some Christian organizations. And I found it interesting. I saw Glad's response to them. <clears throat> I don't know if you saw this, Tom, but they said, in addition to refraining from financially supporting anti-LGBTQ organizations, Chick-fil-A still lacks policies to ensure safe workplaces for LGBTQ employees and should unequivocally speak out against the anti-LGBTQ reputation that their brand represents. Well, that that's... Uh... I think what a lot of people have come to see, which is it's not enough, um, <clears throat> you know, to not be against something. You have to be for what their agenda is. You have to affirmatively endorse it. You have to promote it. Uh, it's not enough. Frankly, I, I, you know, I, I was a little bit disappointed, to be honest, with how quickly conservatives, Christians, attacked Chick-fil-A. I mean, this is a very brave company. Mm-hmm. And they continue to be. We don't know exactly how this policy change is going to be implemented, but um, those are difficult decisions to make, and it's difficult for a company to be profitable when it's closed on Sunday and all of that. I hope people who quickly criticize them for this also praise them for the other. But um, I knew right away it wasn't going to be enough. Uh, the These... Homosexual rights organizations like GLAD and like Human Rights Campaign and others, they want affirmative endorsement. They want promotion. They want you uh, serving their agenda. They don't just want you to, to stop opposing it. And uh, people need to know that. And, and that, too, is not the way it, it ought to be in a free country. 
Yeah, they never they never seem to say, all right, thank you. That satisfies something that we've been uh, frustrated about. And I, I don't know if there's many people who are pro-LGBTQ who are going to now sh- say, I'm, I'm heading over to Chick-fil-A for a chicken sandwich. No, but also um, it, it seems to be an all-or-nothing position for them. In other words, they, they want, it, it, including in these court cases that we talked about just a minute ago, uh, the homosexual side wants everything, and they want the folks who who have religious convictions uh, in the other direction to have nothing. Right. In, in this country, we ought to be we ought to be trying to maximize everyone's liberty, everyone, and we can do so in even these kinds of situations. Uh, it it shouldn't be an all or nothing, heads I win, tails you lose kind of situation. It does. It just doesn't have to be. Uh, it's a better country if we if we try to maximize everyone's liberty, and that's going to mean there's a line that you ju- that you shouldn't cross because it affects other people's rights. But in most cases, uh, you know, everyone will get along just fine. But that that's unfortunately for right now, it's not the way that they're doing it. Yeah, Tom, thanks for lending us your brains and charming personality today. I uh, hope my mother's listening. I hope she so. is, too. It's you've been a delight. It's been really nice meeting you, and I would love to have you back on. Thank you so much for uh, well, taking I'd the time to do this. Thank you. Thanks Tom, for having me. You bet. Thomas Jipping has been my guest. Uh, he is the deputy director of the Edwin, Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and senior legal fellow. Go to heritage.org to learn more about Thomas. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. Faith Radio is a listener-supported ministry. We exist to lead people to Christ and nurture believers in their faith through Christ-centered media. And we can't do it without you on our team. Become a member of the Faith Radio support team today at MyFaithRadio.com and click on the Donate tab. Want to sponsor a day of on-air ministry? Become a day sponsor. When you do, we'll share your message honoring a loved one or celebrating a milestone on the air. Find out more at MyFaithRadio.com. back in just a couple minutes with R.L. Solberg. He wrote a book called Torahism. Are Christians required to keep the law of Moses? Hmm, that should be interesting. We will be back in a couple minutes. Welcome back to the program. It's awfully nice as I've got this book in my hand because it reads like conversations between friends and passionate believers, which is really what the book is about. And it'd be awfully nice to uh, get the author on the studio line, but it turns out we have him. So how cool is that? It, the book is called Torahism. 
Are Christians required to keep the law of Moses? R.L. Solberg, his friends call him Rob. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. This is an interesting dive you've gone into. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So yeah. let's uh, let's talk about it. Tell me where the book originated. Um, so it's interesting that I, I'm a I've been studying apologetics and theology and philosophy for many many years, and uh, about a year ago, some friends of mine put a put a meme up on social media about the pagan roots of Christmas and how they don't celebrate Christmas, which I see a lot because I have a lot of friends um, on online who believe differently than I do. But this was interesting because the friend who posted this was a strong Christian. And, he, you know, his wife is this amazing singer and she had put out worship CDs and the whole bit. So I thought, well, that's that's strange that a Christian would pile on about Christmas. So I kind of, you know, do- dove in, so to speak, into the conversation. And, and the, they were very gracious to chat with me for a long time. But it, it was this weird I had sort of stumbled upon this mystery of of kind of biblical proportions of this whole other worldview that I had never heard of before. Um which kind of teaches that we're supposed to, as Christians, we're supposed to be keeping the law of Moses, and and there's a whole bunch of a, a additional downstream implications of this of this belief system that they have. So that's kind of what started the book. I I began this long online conversation, which it's the rarest of all literary forms, right? It's the productive Facebook argument. <laughs> so I, uh, but uh, what was interesting, so that's, that's all academic. That's all, you know, nice and enjoyable as a, as a theological nerd myself. But what made it really interesting is that as our conversation went on and it went on for almost two months, we, I, I started having a number of people that reached out to me directly and said, hey, you don't know me, but I'm, I'm friends with these guys, and thank you so much for sticking up for the, the Christian worldview. We didn't know what to think. You know, one, one person said their, their kids are talking to my kids and teaching some very strange things about how Jesus is not divine and we shouldn't be worshiping him. And so they didn't know quite where to go with it, so they were kind of thanking me for, for sort of towing the line publicly, and, and the book kind of came out of those conversations, and it actually includes a lot of those conversations that we had. Well, it's interesting, Rob, because these friends or these people that you were in communication with for a couple of months, they claimed to have said that Jesus wasn't divine. To me, that would have been yeah. end of convo right there. Right. Well, here's what's interesting. They claim he's the Messiah, but that he wasn't divine. Uh, so therefore, he shouldn't be worshipped because, of course, that would be idolatry to, to worship a man. And because of that, that falls in into the next thing where suddenly now the Trinity is is false. And as I di- as I dove into it with them, t- trying to understand where did how did you come to this conclusion? It, it all kind of pointed back to this uh, uh, actually basically to the Nicaea Council. They're claiming all this Roman corruption happened that tried to cause a separation where, where, the, where the Christian church willfully tried to separate itself from its Jewish roots. And they, they kind of claim that as the source. And so, of course, our conversation took a deep dive into history, and it got, it got very interesting. So is that what is then called Torahism? Yes. Well, okay, okay so I should, I should qualify that because Torahism is a term that I had coined okay. because I found a wide— um, a, a wide variety of people who believe this, but they weren't all part of one big universal church. You know, it's not like the Latter-day Saints or the Catholic Church or something like that. So I had to, in our conversations, I had to sort of come up with a a, ter- a term that would represent their belief system. And so I came up with Torahism, similar to, 
you know, Judaism or, or sure. Islam or Christianity. Sure. So it wasn't, it's not derogatory, but it, it's just because their teaching is to say, is telling us return to the Torah. So that's kind of where that came from. That's interesting. Let's talk about the differences between Torah and the law of Moses and what makes this a heresy. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Um, and I, I actually have leaned on a, a number of Messianic Jewish friends um, who helped me a lot and a lot of that literature to, to really understand. So the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's used kind of equivocally uh, by a number of people, including Torahists. So they, they talk about the Torah being, that, being those five books, but also being those 613 mitzvot or commandments that are contained within those first five books. Um, they also say that it is the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. But when we look at Scripture, and I, and I give some examples in the book, especially where Paul uh, makes a distinction between the Torah and the law of Moses, which he says came 430 years later. So, that, so, so what I'm looking at is the distinction that I try to be really clear about up front is the Torah and, and its Scripture, and we are under its authority as much as any other part of Scripture. However, the law of Moses that God gave as a covenant with Israel is a different thing. And the law of Moses is no longer... Uh, it, it, I shouldn't give away the answer to the book, but <laughs> the law of Moses is is not something that Christians are bound to any longer because Jesus came and became the the sacrifice one for all, as it says in Hebrews. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm scratching my head trying to figure out where this teaching comes from, um, that Christians would be bound to keep the law. Yeah, that's, it's very interesting. And it do, I do get into it in the book a bit, but so... Um, there's a number of organizations that kind of teach this or hold to this. And, and I, you know, I didn't want to, I don't want to name bash. So I try to keep actual members, you know, names out of it. So I don't, I don't give, I kind of change the names to protect the innocent, so to speak in my quotes, but we're talking about groups like, like the uh, return to Torah movement or the Hebrews roots movement, or there's one called seeds of Abraham. And they all, they all have a very common set of beliefs, even though they're slightly different sects. Um, the belief is very much around that the anti-Semitic um, sentiments that were carried by the church fathers into, you know, the second, third, fourth centuries with Constantine and the, and the Council of Nicaea. And they'll say things like, you know, the, at the Council of Nicaea, the church decided, hey, we're not going to celebrate uh, Passover. We're going to celebrate Easter instead. And hey, we're not going to celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday. We're going to celebrate it on Sunday instead. So they point to those things and say, see— Christianity tried to cut the roots to the Jewish faith. And mm. if, and it's a, I mean, as I mentioned in the book, if you're a marksman and you're, and the barrel of your gun is off by a fraction of an inch while you're aiming, it could miss the target downrange by many feet. And this is kind of theologically what Torahism does. They start with these slight misunderstandings or incorrect uh, uh, assumptions about historical corruption, and then they kind of roll them out to their logical conclusion, and it becomes this crazy heresy. All right, Rob, so how does elevating the law affect our views of Jesus? This is, to me, the beautiful thing. And when I was, when I was researching for this book, I had no idea where I was going to land. So to be honest, as I wrote the book, I was processing my position on some of these things. Okay. And I came, to, I came to see the Torah and the law as this beautiful gift from God to set Israel apart as a nation. And... Uh, it served its purpose in time. It, it, you know, it, it, it was holy. It was given by God. As Paul said, the law was good. It wasn't that it was bad. It was just that it was only meant 
for a certain time. And so all of these, as I dug into the feasts and the, and the dietary restrictions and the purity laws in the Old Testament, you start to see how every one of those points to Jesus, or as Yeshua is his, his uh, Hebrew name, which I use throughout this book. So, and I kind of walk through in the book how these feasts point to Yeshua and how beautiful and amazing it is, God's redemptive story throughout history, that when Jesus came, he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. And, and what does that mean? He was the perfect sacrifice that that was once for all, as opposed to the continual sacrifices that we saw in the in the Old Testament, in the Torah, constant daily and annual sacrifices for sins, you know, and this is, to be honest, this is a point that, that, that where I think Torahism really fails is, is that I say, if Jesus was not the end of the law of Moses, and if he did not come to sacrifice himself once for all, why did he come? Because they believe the temple is going to be rebuilt. The Torahists believe the temple will be rebuilt and the sacrifices will be renewed. And, and my answer to that is, well, then what's the point of, of Jesus' sacrifice for us? Hmm. I'm thinking as you're speaking. So I, I have to work a little <laughs> okay. harder uh, because of this subject matter. So if Torahism, I don't know if I have this right, if Torahism would be denying his divinity, how does he become the Messiah without being God. Yeah, that's the question. Okay. And there is, I've, I've heard no good answer for that. Okay. They, 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 subscri they subscribe to the, the Jude Judaic um, understanding of Mashiach or Messiah, that he is going to be a political figure. He's going to, he's going to lead to military victories and that sort of thing. And what's interesting is I got into it and I've tried to explain this, that they are taking the New Testament scriptures. So all of the New Testament Torahists uh, accept as scripture, but they're interpreting it only from within the limited context of the Old Testament. And so when we talk about things like the new covenant in Jesus' blood and the, and the, and the new, when Jesus says, a new command I give to you, well, how can he say he has a new command if the Torah says, you shall not add or, re or remove from the commandments I give you? And they, for some reason, and I don't know what it is, all I, can, <laughs> all I can think of is Francis Schaeffer's famous line about having your feet planted firmly in midair. Um, there doesn't seem to be a logical ground for what they're, what they're saying they believe. Mm -hmm. So when I think of uh, Torahism, and how does it view the Trinity, Torahism? It views the Trinity as a Roman corruption. It, they, they think that was not taught at all uh, it, by, the, by the apostles and by Jesus. They say there's nowhere in the Old Testament that the Trinity is talked about, and it's a fabrication. Um, okay. Now, these are folks that you understand to be believing Christians that are still adhering to this? Well, yeah. So they they claim they are no longer Christians. They claim to oh, have gotcha. walked away. Gotcha. Yeah. So they claim that— Okay. They, yeah, but they still follow Jesus. They still follow Yeshua. So— Okay. Um, and what, what's interesting is my friends, who, by the way, are what from what I call the old country, which is Minnesota, where I was born and raised, okay. uh, down in Nashville now. But they, 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 they talk about how um, they have everything that we hear as Christians on a Sunday morning is lies and fabrications that were repeated down through the generations, all through the centuries till today. We're hearing, you know, the stuff we hear on a Sunday morning is is the is the myths of our fathers rather than the real world or the real word so what they claim to do and i and i have to give them credit because they are so passionate about god they just happen to be theologically making a mistake but as i point out in my book this isn't about you know my fight is not with people it's with ideas and so i want to help 
shine some light on what the Bible actually says. And when, when they start talking about um, walking away from Christianity yet still accepting Christ and denying the Trinity but still accepting the New Testament, it starts to become this very murky waters. And and that's where, honestly, it's where my concern comes from, is that at the end of the day, what, what many of them are saying is that salvation comes through obedience to the Torah, and that is so dangerous. Mm-hmm. You've come alongside these folks and, and loved them and confronted them with truth and learned from them, haven't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They've taught me a lot about the beauty of the Torah, the beauty of the rabbis' teachings, and it's been amazing. Yeah. Let me take a quick break, Rob. When we come back, I've got all kinds of questions, uh, starting with biblical support for Christians keeping the law. That's where I want to start. Uh, Rob Solberg is my guest, and the book he's written is called Torahism, Are Christians Required to Keep the Law of Moses? We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. I'm talking to R.L. Solberg. He's written a book called Torahism. Are Christians required to keep the law of Moses? And the problem, Rob, with taking breaks is it gives me a chance to think. And all of a sudden I'm going, where did this take root? Is this among <laughs> Gentile Christians? Yes, they're all Gentile. Here's the interesting. Every Torahism, every Torahist that I've spoken with, and it's been many, and I'm not using this hyperbolically, 100% of them, are former Christians who walked away from the Christian okay, faith. Okay. They're, they're all Gentiles. They're they all trying to um, observe and honor the Jewish roots of the Christian faith, which I celebrate. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that they—I I think Christians should participate in some of those feasts. You get such a rich understanding. I, that's where I learned so much um, about my Christian faith. So let's— uh... Let's just talk about the, is there, you know, there's no biblical support for Christians keeping the law. I mean, Jesus came to fulfill the law, not, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, and that's that, that actual verse that yeah. you're referring to, I think yeah. it's Matthew 5, 17. That's, that's a, one of the major verses that the, a tourist will look to to say, look, Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to abolish, not to abolish, but to fulfill them. Okay. And and so that's one of the points they make. And in a, in a larger conversation, or I'm sorry, a larger argument is that Jesus or Yeshua kept Torah, so I'm going to do the same thing. So there's a there's all kinds of theological and historical um, matters wrapped up in this one series of arguments, as you can imagine. But but the the big thing that I say is okay. I agree with you. Jesus came not to abolish, but to fulfill the law, what it says in Matthew five seventeen. So what does that mean to fulfill the law? You know, how does that look? How does that show that the law is still, still valid today? And so then we get into things like the biblical covenants and certainly the Mosaic covenant, which is a conditional covenant. Um, and, and so what we end up with is saying Jesus fulfilled the law by being the unblemished sacrifice, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so that's why he says the new covenant in my blood, the shedding of his blood and his resurrection ushered in the law of Christ. Um, and, it, and and we don't want to say that the law of Moses was abolished or, or, or thrown away like so much trash because it wasn't. It, it was beautiful. It was perfect. It came from God and it served its role in time, but it was never intended to be 
eternal or for le- uh, everlasting. You know, like Paul talks about how the law was our guardian until until Christ came. I think this is in, in Galatians 3. Um, so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. And then Paul says, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So uh, it, when I present those things, they talk to me about how I don't understand what Paul was talking about. And, you know, he was a rabbi and he would have understood it differently. And they try to get off into a lot of tangents. But the bottom line is the New Testament is so clear. There's no more restriction on eating. The feasts, we're not supposed to let anyone challenge us with regard to a feast or a Sabbath day. Um, You know, and like I just like I just read from Galatians, Paul says several different places, the law is no longer binding. And Mm -hmm. And I think probably the biggest scriptural support for this is Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. Um, where, where Paul and Barnabas and Peter all went to Jerusalem because the Judaizers were saying, hey, these new Christians, they have to keep the law of Moses and they have to be circumcised or they can't be saved. And, and if you read through the Acts 15, it's very clear they decided, no, they don't need to do that. They don't need to keep – they just gave them four restrictions uh, to keep the peace among the, the new Christians and the Jews. But there was no requirement by the apostles or the Holy Spirit – to uh, that new Christians are supposed to be keeping the law of Moses. So, Rob, would the the people who are in um, Torahism, for lack of a better way of saying this, I don't know, uh, would they be keeping the feasts and keeping the Sabbath, and would they be doing the dietary laws and the ceremonial washing and oh yeah, part of their yep. life? Yeah, even the original couple that I mentioned uh, in the book, I call them Bob and Sue. Uh, they even go to a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh, because they feel that's their duty. They're required as believers to do that. And and certainly that's what the Old Testament talked about, the, the law of Moses, you know, to, to go to Jerusalem. And I, I tried to explain, well, the new law, we're in a sense, we're sent out from, you know, Jesus says, go and make a disciples among all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So in a sense, Jesus is changing that and saying, no, we're not called to Jerusalem where there's a holy place. Like Jesus said, you know, a day will come when you no longer have to worship on the mountain or in the temple. You know, you're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. And we are sent out from Jerusalem, so to speak, metaphorically speaking, to go to the ends of the earth and and preach his gospel. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. So yes, to to, yeah, to answer your question, yes, they they do keep those those restrictions and those feasts. Yeah, Rob. Would you know what what they're seeking by doing this? I mean, what did they not find in Christianity that made them want to walk away? Interesting. So what I'm gonna what I'm gonna share with you is my speculation, uh, because I don't know. I, when I ask, I've uh, in these conversations, I've not gotten clear answers. But here's my sense. I feel like. Uh, the modern church and their, I'll say their flavor of the modern church where they were going, uh, became too loose and spirit-filled and free and all that kind of thing. And they began missing the sense of, am I saved or am I not saved? And maybe it's easier if I can just do some works, mm. do some specific things to tell me that, oh, I I kept the laws, I kept the feasts, of course I'm saved. So they, they kind of became uneasy um, with the faith side of it and, and wanted to, and, and here's the thing, they love God and they know their scriptures well. Um, so I don't want to, to bash their faith where they are, but they've just let, been led astray. And I feel like, you know, I even told them, I, you know, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you find what you're looking for. And I know it's going to be Jesus, you know, because really, honestly, there's only two ways they could go. They either are going to retreat entirely into Judaism, or I think they're going to, 
and this is my prayer for them, that they would come back, they would begin to see Jesus and who he is, that he was the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies, and he is the Jewish Mashiach, and he's the, he's the, the end. Actually, in John, it says the, Torah, the end of the Torah, the goal of the Torah was the Messiah. It's Jesus. They would see that everything points to him. That's my, that's my prayer for them. Mm-hmm. When we started this, uh, we were talking about them not wanting to uh, celebrate holidays like Christmas and Easter. What is their beef <laughs> with that? Uh, this gets really crazy. Um, okay. So Christmas, Christmas, I have a whole chapter in here on Christmas and Easter. Um, their beef is they believe they've, they've, they've um, conflated certain things, historical things, which are true. And this is, this is why it's difficult to sort of parse Torahism. They've conflated the idea that, hey, in Rome, they, they set, celebrated Saturnalia and certain other uh, winter, winter festivals. And so all Christianity did was absorb those festivals and turn them into Christian festivals or the same thing with Easter. You know, it's, it, they try to point back to Ishtar, the, the Babylonian goddess, or they try to point to uh, Oster, which is a, has German roots. But what's interesting is when you look at them, when you study the history around those, which are very true, the pagan holidays that used to be celebrated, there is really no connection. There's no significant connection, at least. I mean, Ishtar and Easter, okay, they sound kind of similar. But when you look at it, Ishtar is a Babylonian goddess of war and the ale house. And, and uh, Easter is about, a, and, and it's known, uh, the Babylonian goddess is known to be a myth. And, and op- opposed to that is Easter. So you've got a real historical human being named Jesus of, uh, of Nazareth, who really lived and who actually died himself to save humanity, there are no parallels. Um, so I'm not sure how they came to believe the, those historical, and I've seen some of these things on atheists' websites, because, uh, you know, Richard Dawkins has a famous uh, meme that he puts out about Easter, and, and it seems like a lot of those sites are the source for the historical charges leveled by tourists a lot. But to me, it's just conflating what mm-hmm. really happened with, with, with myth, you know? Yeah. All right, Rob, we've got about three minutes left, so maybe you would help us just to think biblically about the Old Testament and how that has a place in our faith, in our Christian faith. You know, what must we obey today? Yeah, so <clears throat> the Old Testament, obviously, it tells the story. It's God's redemptive story, and, and I see— if you look at it, there's a, there's kind of a pattern that repeats, and you see it in you see it in Noah, and you see it in Moses, and you see it in Jonah. Um, how God does not give up on His people. This is one amazing thing I learned as, as I really dove into it. Because honestly, when I started on this book a year ago, I wasn't as deep in in Old Testament theology. But you just see this idea that that God came. For example, the the law of Moses, which is the kind of the central point of this book. God gave Israel the law of Moses. And if you read in Deuteronomy, you see that even as he gave it, he knew that they would break it and that they would eventually some one day be sent into exile. And Moses talks about a prophet better than me that will be coming. So even though God knows that we fall short and that he knows that he can give us some perfect holy law, but we can't live up to it, he still doesn't abandon us. He's, he, he gives us a way out. He continually, his mercy is never ending almost. I mean, it, it's amazing to see because a lot of times you get the sense the Old Testament God was the was the mean, you know, harsh God, and the New Testament's all about love. But there's love all over the Old Testament as well in his long patience with his people and how he always offers them hope and a way out. Um, and if, if, if we try to uh, 
press into press into God, he will be there for us. It's it's amazing to see his faithfulness and his love throughout the history of humankind. Yeah, Rob, this is an interesting discussion. I, I appreciate all the work you've done and how you have come alongside these folks and loved them and shared truth with them and then sort of wrote down your experience of what you've learned. It's really interesting. I could definitely sit down Thank you. And, and have a barbecue with you one night over about five hours and enjoy the conversation <laughs> for all five hours. That would be amazing. Yeah, but I would want you to buy just... Yeah, I'd have up. to bring it up from Nashville. It's better barbecue. Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> Nashville's got the best. Thank you, uh, Rob, for doing the show. It's been really nice to meet you. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Bill. You bet. R.L. Solberg has been my guest, and his book is called Torahism, Are Christians Required to Keep the Law of Moses? We'll take a little break, and we will be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.